a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges with The Journey to Impact, and thank you for joining us today. I have Morgan Simon with us, who's two decades of making finance a tool for social justice, having influenced over $150 billion in that time. She is the author of Real Impact, The New Economics of Social Change, which has been featured by Harvard Business School and the United Nations. A very sought after expert in the impact investing space. She's now a regular voice in media and an active investor as founding partner of Candide Group. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't honor um, the moment. And a lot of my um, interviews of late have been really sort of honoring where we're at in terms of this unique pandemic, social, public health, financial, existential moment. And so where are you at in terms of not just logistically, but uh, professionally and personally with uh, the current um, crisis? Um, I'm mostly angry um, at the way that systemic racism that has always perpetuated our economic systems is really being emphasized um, through the responses that we're seeing. So to some degree, what's been really fascinating and even checking my own response, um, I've been hearkening back a lot to when Trump first got elected and there was a lot of outrage, um, specifically from white women, right? And, and the Women's March concept and, and this feeling of, um, we didn't know that things could get this bad, right? That, that our rights, that our well-being, that our um, even just existence could be so existentially threatened. And the response from many women of color was, well, welcome to the party. We've felt this way for 100 years. Um, and to some degree, what's fascinating to me about COVID is that it's just peeling back the layers on everything that has failed in the economy, in the ways that it's created massive health disparities for people of color, in the way that the gig economy, um, which is largely stewarded by people of color, is really failing people in this moment. And the fact that when we think about essential workers, um, how really for me, the frontline health workers um, that we need to be paying more attention to are farm workers who are typically, at least in California where I live, over 70% of whom are undocumented and therefore don't qualify at all for the stimulus bill, um, but are the ones that are keeping us healthy. Um, and then the other piece, when we then look at what is this meant for me and as an investor and how I've been spending my time, um, has been really helping to push through a number of the PPP loans. Um, so the main element of the stimulus bill to get loans out supposedly to small business, but that got, you know, 10 million out to companies like Shake Shack or 4.6 million to the Lakers. I'm from LA, um, you know, definitely a fan, but let's just say if they had 40 million to pay LeBron James last year, they probably could afford to pay any of their workers at $15 an hour. 
Um, so there has been kind of once again in thinking that we all pay our taxes, this massive wealth extraction um, in having so much of those relief funds go to publicly owned and large companies, as opposed to the small businesses, largely black and brown led, that, that really drive the economy. Um, so a lot of my work in the past week has been really making sure that as many social enterprises as possible get their hands on that money. Um, Candide Group, we work with families, foundations, athletes, and other cultural influencers who want their money working for social justice. Over half of our portfolio is led by women and people of color. So when I talk about um, making sure that our portfolio companies um, get access to the stimulus money, I need women and people of color uh, is our predominant focus amongst uh, social enterprises writ large. So I think it's always this combination of how do we translate outrage into action. Um, and then the final piece that I would make about that, um, a lot of our work at Candide Group is kind of marrying this idea of investing and advocacy. So we deploy about 40 million a year of capital for our families, foundations, and influencers. Um, but we recognize compared to the 196 trillion that circulates in the global economy every day, that's enough capital to pat ourselves on the back, but it's not enough to necessarily make the type of systemic change that we want. Um, so that's part of why I'm a Forbes contributor and that our team has been making sure to really um, be pushing on Congress and using media to get them to think more about how to incorporate small business, businesses led by people of color and women into the stimulus bill, um, of why we've been pushing so hard to make sure that people who are in jail um, are able to stay safe during the COVID crisis, right? So really thinking about how do we leverage not just our capital, but our broader platform. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, sometimes what we'll say at Candide Group is that we really only have one client and that client is social justice. Um, and if you want to serve that client, we'll work with your money, right? Um, but that we're always kind of organizing our activities around what is the critical social justice need on our plate. And right now, it's really how do we clean up after all these historic disparities that our economy has created. Um, but then also, I think the hope is to build from the ashes, right, of, of saying if this system isn't working and we've knocked it all down, right, we expect a significant portion of businesses not to recover, what could we build instead? So I guess I would end by saying um, I'm actually hopeful that our memories aren't too short, that we have a really bad habit, even going back to the 2008 financial crisis, of saying, phew, thank God we got through that. Let's go back to the exact same strategies and see if they get to a different outcome, right? And I think there's, sure. I forget the exact expression, but it's like, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. <laughs> um, so really trying to prevent that in this case um, and leverage our power as investors and activists um, to really shift the future of the economy. So, so what does that look like, Morgan? I mean, in terms of being able to uh, be the phoenix that rises from the acid, uh, the ashes for uh, social activism, um, what does that look like? I mean, what would sort of be sort of the ideal vision or the steps that we would need to take in order to not just go back to sort of that same, uh, you know, the same approach that we did after 2008? 
Sure. So part of our connection, right, is I was the founding CEO of Tonic, one of five co-founders. Um, and one of the things that we piloted, right, was the idea of the 100% network and investors who were willing to really put a stake in the ground and say 100% of your assets all the time can be invested for social environmental impact. Um, and that's largely what we've done with the families and foundations that we work with, right? Of, of really seeing the ability to transition portfolios in that comprehensive way and to be able to think more profoundly about the word legacy, which is something that we, we talk a lot uh, about at Candid Group, this idea that when you sit down with your grandchildren, it's not just saying, look at this beautiful wealth that I created for you and the ability to go to college and to realize your dreams, but I didn't hurt someone else's family in the process, right? I didn't invest in, for instance, the private prison companies that have been um, detaining families at the U.S. border. You know, I didn't lock up someone else's family to ensure that my family could thrive. And when we think about legacy from that perspective of this really holistic um, recognition of value, right, that value is both economic value, but it's also the ability to hold your head high in the community. And that's where I think we have the opportunity to really repurpose this concept of value and legacy as wealth owners um, and to revisit what are the ways when this sort of a crisis emerges that we are complicit, that our uses of capital have been complicit in creating these sorts of crises. Um, and that that means we have the ability to build that future. But something that I think we can't forget, you know, when we talk about community autonomy, um, particularly in parts of the world that have had resource extraction over hundreds of years, whether that's natural resources, whether it's the actual stealing of people and enslavement of people, um, mm -hmm. that we can't expect that shift to happen without replacing and replenishing some of those historically stolen resources, um, which is why we think of some of our investments, you know, when, when we're, we work with um, investments, uh, investors, from various ethnic backgrounds, our, um, our team internally at Candy Group is majority women of color, um, though certainly doing more to diversify across different levels of the company. Um, so obviously everyone's historical narrative is different, um, but we think it's really important kind of coming from that reparations sort of framework um, to be thinking through what's the real purpose of capital and what is it that we're trying to achieve collectively. Um, and, and I wanna be clear within that, that there are great and legitimate reasons for people to need to make and preserve wealth, right? So it's not necessarily about giving all your money away, depending on kind of where you sit within that, but that we always start in working with families, foundations, other groups of how much is enough for your particular situation. Mm. And in some cases, that means we're building portfolios that are beating the Cambridge benchmarks, right? Where that absolutely is a legitimate goal. And then we have others where, the intention might be, well, what if we like tried to lose half thoughtfully, right? If, if philanthropy is negative 100, if I could achieve, uh, let's call it plus 50 compared to that, that's actually a phenomenal return, right? For the impact that you're getting. So I think it's rethinking for everyone. It's an opportunity to reset on what is our starting place? Where do we need to go? And if we want to maximize value, right? Which is different than saying we're going to maximize financial return, but value being a mixture of all these different types of return to ourselves and to our legacy. What does that look like for any individual person? So we don't judge that, um, but we think it's important to consider it on the individual level. 
So how did you, um, how did you um, pivot on this idea or where was your aha moment or at a personal level around this idea of social injustice at, at the intersection of money? Um, was there something in your personal life that says, and then how, I'm just sort of curious about that dance between social injustice and money in you and uh, for you to sort of be out in front on it, speaking so eloquently about it, it seems more than just a cerebral topic for you. Like, where does this begin for you? Um, so this began, uh, I would go back to when I was a teenager running tutoring programs in, uh, in the Valley and downtown Los Angeles with largely Latino immigrant communities. I come from a very middle-class white Jewish background. Um, and I do think that there's a lot of social justice in the Jewish water, um, just in terms of history and tradition. And, um, you know, there, it's not sort of an accident that in the South, the water fountains used to say no blacks or Jews. Um, and that the Jewish experience in America has been a bit distinct. Sometimes I call us the other white meat. Um, so there's certainly cultural values that were passed on there. But a lot of it, um, I think what I kind of, to whatever extent I can credit my consciousness to, because I think to some degree you can't live in most of the world with your eyes open and not be aware um, of where we're at and have it affect you. Um, but I think there's a really important line between charity and solidarity. Um, and charity is often seeing people as less than or other than you and therefore needing your support. Um, and I think what I was really grateful to learn at a young age in spending a lot of time with these largely Mexican immigrant families um, who were incredibly gracious and in opening up their homes to me that technically I was the tutor or the mentor to these young kids, but they were really just my friends, right? They were really like siblings to me who I would go back to technically volunteer with every week because I liked hanging out with them because um, I felt that warmth and connection. And it started to help me really understand you know, that the idea of solidarity to me is treating everyone like they're your family. And when you think about if your partner or your child, like if you happen to walk down the street one day and saw them um, living on the street, not having food that day, maybe even tweaked out on drugs, you know, whatever it might be, what sort of sympathetic response would you have? What sort of outraged response would you have? How would that potentially change how you would respond in that situation? Um, so I think for me, it's been about if you um, can hold the idea of everyone being your family, um, then it's hard to not feel a tremendous amount of pain in walking through the world. And that that has been a big uh, motivator for me with also... Um, you know, I'm also an artist. I'm very active in music and dance. Um, my father is a musician. It's always been a big part of our um, kind of lens of seeing the world is through creativity and cultural expression. And the idea, um, you know, there's an E.B. White quote that's the world is a beautiful, beautiful place. The world is also a terrible, terrible place. And that makes it very hard to plan the day, right? Yes, um, but that's a tension that I feel constantly. Um, and I think that if we, if we walk around eyes wide open, that means you have to see the beautiful and the terrible and fight, um, fight for both. So where does the money part in terms of the social activism meeting the money? Mm -hmm. And so how does that unfold in, see in your life? Like at what point does that 
sort of uh, butt up against each other and how has that evolved over time? Sure. So, and, and thank you for reminding me that was the second yeah. half of your question that um, basically the other is I was a teenager observing these families where um, family of five, five kids, two parents in a one bedroom apartment in downtown LA um, can't get more space and therefore more ease for the children to be able to study um, because the mom is undocumented and um, is working in one of the maquilas, like the sewing factories in LA um, putting up with sexual harassment, different types of abuse, sometimes paychecks not getting granted when they should, um, kids not getting access to healthy food, which makes the focus really difficult in terms of studying as well, um, and just seeing the constant intertwining of economic issues, that you couldn't fix housing without fixing education, without fixing food access, without fixing immigration, without fixing quality jobs, and that anything that I would have tried to have done on any of those verticals would have fallen flat. And the only kind of consistent thread through that to me is the, econ uh, the economy. Um, and even when I think about poverty, for me, that's about a lack of autonomy, right? That do you get to live your life the way that you want to? Um, and that that can be culturally, socially, politically. Um, but what enables those different forms of autonomy is economic autonomy is kind of the root of that. Do you get to make choices for yourself? So I started to really look into what are the levers of the economy? Um, and was privileged to go to a college um, that had a billion dollar endowment and thought to myself, you know, who, who knows what's gonna happen, but let's presume this is the only time in my life I'm gonna be a billionaire um, or I'm gonna be connected to a billion dollars. So let me see what I can do with that. And I started filing shareholder resolutions with my school's endowment. Um, and that's why, you know, I can say with a straight face that I've been doing impact investing for close to 20 years. Um, I filed my first resolution when I was 19 years old. Um, so basically, and, and, and the, the important uh, component of that story is that we won, right? So we got Lockheed Martin, a major um, military manufacturer, to start giving domestic partner benefits um, and to put sexual orientation in the non-discrimination clause. We then wrote four other companies saying, um, hey, we've noticed you don't have this either. We're investors. Would you like to change your policy? And they all wrote back within a month saying, yes, we'll do it. You know, don't file a resolution. Um, and that, you know, by that point, I was the ripe old age of 20 um, and saw that this stuff really worked um, and that being an economic activist was a lever for me to be able to address all these other social issues. Um, so fast forward to now, and I'm co-founder of a registered investment advisory. We've done about 75 investments into companies and funds um, from uh, utility scale solar to the Navajo Nation, um, for, to worker co-ops, to um, uh, beyond fair trade cacao, to, you know, just on and on and on and on. Um, and just seeing the ways that the economy continues to be a lever to address all these different social issues that I care about. Where uh, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you're talking about cultural influencers as part of your um, as part of your clientele. Um, why why cultural influencers? Where I mean, why is that a part of your uh, mission? Explicitly part of our mission is changing the culture of money, um, because I think that's the root of it all. When we talk about things like, what is your legacy and money determining your legacy? 
um, that that can be levered through many forms of cultural influencers, right? Sometimes cultural influencers can simply be high net worth families, right? We've worked um, extensively with a couple different members of the Pritzker family, who I think their leadership and impact investment um, has been hugely influential within the cultural segment of what does it mean to be ultra high net worth in American society? What are the um, levels of responsibility or opportunity that come with that? Another element of that is if I have a huge platform, um, how am I using that to shift the economic narrative? So this is similar to how I mentioned before, right? That, you know, we might deploy 40 million a year, but 196 in the global economy, trillion dollars in the global economy. Um, you know, another stat I would put out there when we get to work with someone like Amy Schumer, who has something like 3 million Twitter followers, um, when she tweets out something like, um, hey, you care about this family detention issue, right? Have you looked at your bank and are they financing those detention centers where these people are getting locked up? Um, and that if you don't know where your money spends the night, you might not be very happy about it, right? So we think about... Um, kind of the, the people that we work with in various functions um, is what's their ways of influencing culture. And that can be with their dollars, that can be with their platform, that can be with both. And we actually launched a partner nonprofit to Candide Group called Real Money Moves, so realmoneymoves.org, um, where we organized over 30 influencers, largely from the NFL, and then cast members of Orange is the New Black to publicly commit to keeping their money out of private prisons, and then to collectively, for some of them, commit 10 million to social investing. Um, and it was essentially saying, like, we're willing to put our money where our mouth is for our values, and we want our fans to be thinking about this too, because even if you have $5 in the bank, you can really make a difference. And to fast forward a year later, um, we, as part of the Families Belong Together Coalition, were able to get nine of the major banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, BNP Paribas, to commit to stop funding the private prisons that were largely profiting from family detention. Um, and are very proud of that. So um, that's the sort of pieces where we can see the combination of, um, yes, we need to build a new economy, but we also need to be activists in the old economy as it currently stands. Yeah, it makes sense. I can see. Yeah, I mean, as soon as Steph Curry says something, I mean, there's 50 million people that are paying attention to what Steph Curry just said. And um, well, I'm in Oakland. You don't have to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> I am pay attention to Steph. I mean, I love Steph. Um, if we could get Riley to say it, I mean, yeah, that's true. And then game <laughs> over. Game over. <laughs> that's true. Well, so how? Um, how do you sort of live with this reality of like you get um, one step forward, you get banks to stop the large banks to stop the private um, pensions, but you know, our, our global economy is huge. So there's other lenders out there that have dark intentions that just fill the vacuum. Um, so a lot of practices continue. Um, and so how do you sort of, sort of that um, mind open to sort of this 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 uh, idea of pushing forward and also realizing like wow I know that there's a lot of money out there that's one-dimensional that doesn't care and yet still going to fund these 
And so how, like, I mean, just sort of like what goes through you when all of a sudden he's like, see, gosh, here goes another private prison being built, even though we got 10 of the biggest banks being because they found other money. And so I guess where I'm going with this is that, I mean, there's sort of a nature to money, right? I mean, you're talking about the culture of money, you're changing the culture of money. How, how can we like, what's the next level of evolution to actually um, get the whole sort of global economy? So where all of a sudden we are cutting off, um, where all of a sudden the darker money just can't even go there anymore because it's just sort of being blinded by, by the light. I'm just sort of interested in like what the next 10 to 20 years looks like in terms of that evolution. And, and, and also your personal journey is a part of that because it's not like you've done all this stuff and haven't been knocked down a few times. Um, I, you know, or been disappointed or frustrated. So there's always that negotiation. Curious about how, how you sort of navigated your practices around that, how you stay centered and yet still have this vision about what the world might look like 10 to 20 years from now in terms of the culture of money. Sure. Um, well, you may see, I, I, uh, can you see me? I'm back. Yeah. Um, and I have a, I have a dog visitor here, um, who, who seems to want to be part of the webinar. So he may pop up his head again. Cool. Um, but uh, the first thing I would say is that, um, it's not just about activism, it's about strategic activism. So we're not just throwing darts at the wall. And I think that that's critical. So for instance, the work that we did around banks and private prisons, private prisons are real estate investment trusts, right? That means that they have to distribute the vast majority of their profit every year. And that means that they have to rely extra hard on bank financing compared to other types of companies. So when the major banks said, we won't lend to you anymore, Fitch actually downgraded, and there's, there's kind of like two major companies, downgraded one of their credit ratings from um, average to negative. Um, and that seriously impacts their ability and pricing around ability to raise additional financing. Um, and we've seen that for both companies, um, I don't want to misspeak there, but at least for one that's in, in currently in my head, uh, precipitous uh, uh, drop in their stock price, consequently. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not just about kind of the throwing darts at a wall, but like knowing what are the strategies that make sense. And then also the other is that we didn't do it alone, right? So Families Long Together is a coalition of over 200 activist groups across the country, represents about 10 million people. We had 500,000 petitions that went into the banks. We had over 50 in-person actions at the banks, a number of which we led at Candide Group or co-led alongside Moms Rising. Um, so from that perspective, it's really, I think we have to be careful sometimes as activists, um, or pardon me, as financial activists, to not just forge ahead with whatever we think is important, but to really connect with social movements is how we do it. And I think that for us, that's a principle, not just in our advocacy work, but in all of our investing work, right? That we talk a lot about accountability to affected communities and that impact investors can often be guilty of um, saying something is social change or something is impact because I say it is, um, as opposed to, I want to be in deep relationship with affected communities for them to tell me what they need because I don't have that lived experience, right? Um, I've never, or let's, let's just say I've never lived on $2 a day for more than like a month at a time um, in terms of some of the global work I've done. But let's say for most of us, right, we do not have that lived experience um, in that way. Um, so then it becomes how do we really build those connections so when the movement comes to us and says, hey, we're trying to understand this connection between bank financing and private prisons. 
um, then it's a great opportunity as financial activists for us to jump in and be supportive of movements. So not acting alone, I think, and, and making sure that you're being strategic about when and how you engage, then yeah, you can make sure it's not just symbolic, but it actually is impacting the work and the policies around it. Um, so that would be point one. And then to your question about um, the, the, the um, getting knocked down, which I think is less, for, for me, the deeper question is just accepting, going back to that E.B. White quote, the fact that the way the world is structured is just hugely problematic. Um, and how do you determine the right amount of engagement? You know, for me, that's mostly men um, figuring out ways to not run myself into the ground. So, you know, in the midst of COVID, um, I've been, you know, pushing really hard on advocacy around getting these PPP loans to more communities of, of color, right? That being this kind of great intersection of like my financial knowledge, having access to, um, to being a Forbes contributorship, um, and being able to push some things, but I'm also delivering, about 200 meals a week to unhoused like homeless members of my community, um, you know, mm. have been delivering roses and poems to friends on their doorsteps. You're just like, yes. there's so many different stages of social change from yeah. like helping one individual a day to trying to shift the debate for millions. Um, and that for me, I think the challenge is for people with relative privilege, um, you know, I'm not facing the day-to-day -day disruptions that others are. I can work from home. I'm very grateful for that. I can go running on the beach with my dog every day, right? Um, so then it becomes for people who actually are experiencing really serious personal trauma right now, yeah, probably not a great time for them to be volunteering in homeless communities. Um, so figuring out what's the limit, um, because there's so much need, I think for me, that's the hardest part, but, um, but I can't get knocked down by the imperfection of humanity. I, I think that would just be unrealistic is what it comes down to yeah. and my own imperfections within that. Sure. Sure. I mean, and then how do you stay, um, you know, a lot of what we read about is, is that, and you start this conversation off, I really like what, how you started off with when I asked about where, you know, where you're at personally and professionally, and you spoke um, about this idea that it's revealing the um, systemic racial injustices um, and really just sort of taking all the clothes, clothes off it. And we're just sort of seeing the rawness of you know, I don't know what the exact stat is, but I know that a small, a large part of the population has under a thousand dollars in their savings account. Obviously, after a pandemic and crisis like this, where all of a sudden a lot of employment opportunities are restricted, people are going to bleed through that pretty quickly. And where does that? And then a lot of the jobs um, as well, and how people were occupied. Um, you know, where perhaps in some people would say in slow dying industries are accelerating their own death, whether it's in retail and, and so forth. How do we, how do we come out of this? And so, I mean, this is the, the final question. How do we come out of this and make sure that this, uh, that the wealth inequality that can potentially, what we might be looking at a year from two, a year to two years from now, might just be so drastically even worse than what we're currently experiencing. How do we, over the next month, the next year, stay, one, stay focused and not fatigued, like, like you said, because the need will be endless. 
But where do we go from here to make sure that um, that we do honor the sanctity of all the citizens that that live in this country with us, whether they're seemingly an essential work or non-essential work, which is sort of a funny category. But um, in general, yeah, I am concerned about what's what's happening. I mean, the government's throwing a lot of money at the situation right now, but what happens when that money starts drying up? And what happens when money just gets to act like money, which attends, which, which what we saw in like in 2008 and 2009? Um, well, when I think there's, there's like a couple of quotes I want to give a response. Um, I'm not sure who originally said this, but I know that Woody Tash, uh, the slow money founder would often say, you know, um, that money, when you spread it around, it's like manure, it helps things grow, um, yeah. and replenish and renew. Um, but if you just keep it piled up, then it's a pile of shit. Yeah. And um, it stinks. And it stinks. Yeah. So um, basically, one is thinking about whether philanthropically, from the investment perspective, like knowing that for people, institutions that are used to sitting on money, um, of, are there opportunities to strategically deploy? So, for instance, two of the foundations that we support in their impact investing, who we're very proud of, um, the Lieber Foundation and Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation, both of them doubled their philanthropic giving this year. So at a time when many foundations might have been pulling back and concerned about the fall in the public equity markets of saying, we recognize that our communities are hurting even more than we are, and we want to do something about that. And by the way, last year, we probably got 25% returns, right, in the big run. So this could be a great opportunity to send some of it. So um, that's one piece. Um, Second is, you know, Anand Gridharadas, who wrote Winners Take All, one of the lines he uses a lot that I... uh, appropriate uh, with reckless abandon is this idea of not just focusing on giving back, but stop taking, right? Like, are there opportunities within our business environments um, to make sure that we're really um, addressing inequality in the ways that we cement the wealth gap? And some of the um, things for me that really come up, I guess, two kind of main points One is that sometimes as impact investors, I think we're guilty of adopting a good enough for those people sort of response, whether it's what should a minimum wage be um, or what sort of conditions are appropriate, as opposed to thinking more from that solidarity approach of if my sister were to go work as an entry level person at this place, would I feel great about how they got treated? Would I say it was fair? Or would I be advising her like, what the hell, you don't get health insurance, like go fight, right? Um, And that's a big part of why with Candide Group, we've often talked a lot about the difference between the how and the what in impact investing. Um, Because we can get very wrapped up in, for instance, some of the metric conversations around like, this enterprise created 5,000 jobs. That's the what of impact. But if you left out the how, which is, well, is it a living wage job or is it a job that's forcing you to get a job on the weekends? Is it a job that gets you access to quality healthcare? Um, You know, we see so much that's like, um, you know, we created X, um, you know, low paying jobs in um, low income zip codes. And it's like, yeah, isn't that why people are poor? (laughs) Because we're perpetuating this. Um, So really trying to think more deeply of how do businesses have to operate separate from any consideration of sector geography. Um, But what is the criteria for real sustainability? Um, And one of the levers that we often use to measure that is this idea of, are you adding more value than you extract? 
So it's not just about, is an intervention a little bit better, but is it fundamentally fair? Um, and that's based on the transform finance principles, um, which in the book I kind of go through in much more detail if people are interested in exploring that sort of philosophy. Nice. I'm here with Morgan Simon, author of Real Impact, The New Economics of Social Change. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much for eloquently connecting um, social activism, financial activism, the culture of money. And I think you have a very unique um, way of actually putting the mosaic together, a very uh, thoughtful way of not only putting it together, but actually articulating it. And, and I can imagine uh, much more success for you, especially coming out with this um, immense vacuum, this cultural vacuum. I mean, your voice is needed more than ever. Well, thank you so much for having me and really thrilled to, I mean, we're all, we're all building this work together. I think that's, that's really the opportunity that we have. I agree. And you touched on that in your last point about the role of collaboration um, being so, so central to, I mean, your work. I mean, I think that's one of the uh, things that really stuck out to me is not so much what uh, Morgan wants or it's but like, hey, how many other people are out there that want this as well within the communities that uh, we're helping and are we asking them? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. <laughs>